Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bardflies, a podcast featuring fairies, changelings, fickle lovers, obnoxious actors, and a magical potion so dangerous that it should be a Schedule 1 drug. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is episode 13, Lord, What Tools These Mortals Be, in which we'll be talking about A Midsummer Night's Dream. Lord! (laughs) What fools these mortals be! Will, on the subject of dangerous magical potions, can I tell you that since this is our first, or I should say in honor of our first evening recording of this podcast, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm also sipping on a delightful Manhattan. And I am sipping on some very pleasant, very cold white wine in my sweltering apartment. James, now that it's established that we are um, both limber and loose and ready for discussion of this fine, fine piece of dramaturgy and theatrical musing, do you want to break down this crazy complex plot for us? Yeah, and let me start by offering... A very, very brief pricey of what little we know about this one. A Midsummer Night's Dream is believed to have been written in 1595 or 1596, and supposedly, um, or it's believed to have been written as a commission to be performed at a noble wedding, which really discovering that answered the question that has for a long time been lurking in the back of my mind of just how far back does the tradition of hiring really famous musical acts to perform at rich kids' bar mitzvahs go. From what I've read, there seems to be some scholarly consensus around the idea that Queen Elizabeth I was herself actually at the wedding where the play was first performed, which would account for the oblique poetic groveling that Shakespeare directs her way in Oberon's speech in Act 2, Scene 1. The imperial votaress passed on in maiden meditation, fancy free. I mean, the guy does have to eat. <laughs> Whatever it takes to butter your bread, I you know I support it. This play is also one of a pretty small group of plays that Shakespeare wrote without using any pre-existing source material, although he does draw on a variety of pretty familiar tropes and legends like you know stories from Roman and Celtic mythology. Now, we'll rather than try to give a blow-by-blow of what is a pretty labyrinthine comic plot— I wanted instead for this one to try to give more of a structural overview. The play is really segmented into four different plots, which overlap, but mostly all exist within their own plot lines. So first, there's the story of Theseus and Hippolyta, which is taken from classical legend. Yes, you did say the plot was labyrinthine, but I take it there are no minotaurs in this story? Well, we'll get to that. However, um, the story of Theseus and Hippolyta specifically acts more as a driver for the other action in the play rather than operating as its own plot line. So as this play starts, Theseus, who is portrayed here as the Duke of Athens, and Hippolyta, who is a legendary Amazon queen, are preparing to get married. And of course, no marriage is complete without entertainment, and so Theseus and Hippolyta commission a play to be performed at that ceremony, just as Shakespeare has been commissioned to write this play to be performed at a wedding. We will be talking more about this play that Theseus and Apollo have commissioned in a bit. Second, there is the story of the four lovers, Helena, Hermia, Demetrius, and Lysander. Now, the simple part is that Hermia and Lysander are in love and want to get married. 
However, Hermia's father prefers that she marry Demetrius, who is more or less the local douchebag, who has asked for her hand in marriage. Finally, there's Hermia's best friend, Helena, who herself loves Demetrius, and this love is unrequited. Although, Shakespeare does offer the distinct impression that Demetrius has led Helena on for some time and has only recently transferred his affection to Hermia. So, faced with the objections of Hermia's father, Hermia and Lysander decide to elope, but not before Hermia, like an idiot, tells Helena about this plan, and Helena, who for some reason thinks that sharing this information is going to make Demetrius fall in love with her, tells him. And so, all four of them end up wandering around the woods outside Athens on a midsummer night, where much mischief befalls them. Third, there's the story of the quote-unquote rude mechanicals, a group of common Athenian to whom falls the task of putting on the play for Theseus and Hippolyta. Their names are Peter Quince, Nick Bottom, Francis Flute, Tom Snout, Robin Starveling, and Snug, who for some reason doesn't have a last name. I don't know why. They select the tragic tale of Pyramus and Thisbe as their subject, and realizing that, in the words of Quince, if we meet in the city, we shall be dogged with company and our vices known, they retreat to the woods to rehearse unseen by their fellow citizens. Finally, there's the story of the fairies of the wood, Oberon, Titania, and Puck, and as well as all their minions. Oberon and Titania are the king and queen of the fairies, and they are in the midst of an epic, epic argument that seems to be one addition, I guess, in an eternal cycle of fallings out and reconciliations, and also seemingly of a chronic... Well, to say that these guys are in an open relationship seems like it's putting it mildly. In this case, the issue at hand is that Oberon wants to claim a changeling boy that Titania has as a servant to be his own page boy. But Titania refuses this because she was good friends with the changeling boy's mother, and therefore she wants to keep him under her control. Enraged, Oberon resolves to create a love potion that he will have his servant Puck use to cause Titania to fall madly in love with some hideous creature. At which point, Oberon just assumes that she'll give up the changeling to him. This whole thing sounds highly suspect, definitely unethical, and probably illegal. There's definitely some date rapey stuff going on in this play, to put it mildly. When Oberon sees Helena and Demetrius wandering through the wood, however, and sees how Demetrius is treating Helena, Oberon also instructs Puck to use the potion to cause Demetrius to fall in love with Helena. Puck quickly learns a lesson that should be familiar to any of our listeners who have ever been in an entry-level job, which is that when your boss gives you vague instructions, you should probably clarify them or bad things are going to happen. In this case, Oberon told Puck that he would know Demetrius by his Athenian garb, but Oberon failed to realize that Lysander and Hermia were also wandering around the wood. So when Puck sees Lysander and Hermia before he sees Demetrius and Helena, he assumes that Lysander is the Athenian man that Oberon was talking about. Once Lysander and Hermia fall asleep, Puck applies the potion to Lysander's eyes and departs. Lysander is then disturbed when Helena walks by. He wakes up, and of course, now he immediately falls in love with Helena because of the power of the potion. Helena is extremely confused because she knows that Lysander is in love with Hermia. She runs away. Lysander pursues her. Then Hermia wakes up and wonders where Lysander has gone. Meanwhile... Puck has gone to perform his task of applying the potion to Titania. Having done this, he then puts a donkey's head on bottom when he spies the mechanicals nearby. So, Will, on the subject of is there a minotaur in this play, the answer is kind of. <laughs> Thus, when in that moment, so it came to pass, 
Titania waked, and straightaway loved an ass. Hilarity ensues until Oberon decides that enough is enough, and restores Titania to her normal senses and bottom to his normal shape. He also has Puck correct his error with the Athenians. Demetrius is made to fall in love with Helena, and Lysander is released from his enchantment to return to his love for Hermia. The two couples, now happy together, return to Athens to attend the marriage of Theseus and Apollida and to watch the Mechanicals perform their fantastically terrible rendition of the story of Pyramus and Thisbe. Finally, Oberon, Titania, and Puck appear to bless the proceedings, and Puck, given the last word, tells the audience that it may have all just been a dream. I gotta say, Will, I really wish that having to give this plot summary existed only in my dreams. So how's that Manhattan? Uh, I'm just desperately waiting for it to take effect. That was painful. <laughs> well, it is a extremely tangled mashup of multiple mythological universes and plot lines and love stories slash hate stories. I guess we'll get into that. But one thing that I took away from this one is the world that Shakespeare is describing here and that he creates, it pulls in people from a lot of different positions and backgrounds. The changeling is from India, supposedly. There's a bunch of references to that. You know, Puck and Oberon, they're Celtic, English mythology figures. And then obviously you have Theseus and the Athenians. So, you know, I was well, kind and, of... and Titania, right? Titania is another name for the goddess Diana. Right. also from... Greek and Roman mythology. Right. So th there's this sort of crazy mashup effect in this one. And in some ways, it's kind of like liberating to see Shakespeare going for it and creating a completely unique universe. He's not necessarily riffing on any source material, but it's also dizzying and madcap and crazy in its effect. And I sort of struggled with enjoying this one, even though it is fun and I've seen it performed and I like it. So do you think that, that it works or did you come away with it feeling that it's confusing and, and crazy and that the mashup effect of including all of these different mythological creations works or not? Now, I, I feel like if you were to ask, you know, your man on the street to name five Shakespeare plays, this would be one of those five. This is definitely in that top tier as far as iconic, immediately recognizable Shakespeare plays go. And I, I, I had a bit of the same feeling. You know, reading the play, I didn't quite get that level of fascination with it. Now, I can see the sense of it being a crowd pleaser. You know, I read... One thing that Harold Bloom points out in his essay on it in Shakespeare, The Image of the Human, is that the play concludes with the play within the play performed by the mechanicals that is just written to be terrible, right? And that's <laughs> always funny. This is the point that he makes. And and obviously, you know, I think we've established by now that I don't love Harold, but I think that's a good point, right? That that is something that has some kind of immediate appeal. To answer your direct question, I found in this play, on the one hand, I was a little confused by it, and I had a hard time grabbing onto it and understanding what the appeal of it was on an immediate level. And yet there is also a certain power to it, and I think it's mostly coming in the supernatural stuff. Mm. You know, there's something about the dancing and the poetry and the behavior of Oberon and Titania, both to themselves, but I think for me, more importantly, 
in the way that they're interacting with the mortal world. You know, there's something mysterious and like not negative exactly, but still frightening to it. Yeah, I I agree with you. And I feel like the character that stands out to me in that sense is Puck, who I think is often portrayed as a amusing, impish character, which is what I think he is intended to be. And this is a comedy. But there is definitely that strain of that old England green man folk horror kind of vibe that I feel like is very much a part of that mythological tradition and the gods not necessarily or you know the the creatures of the forest not necessarily um intending good things for you per se and maybe kind of enjoying playing pranks at the most innocent level but also manipulating and causing destruction. Now, it doesn't quite go that way fully, but there is that element of unruliness that comes out of that tradition. Will, if I can throw a shout-out to uh, one Professor James R. Russell. When we read read the Bacchae way back in the day in Professor Russell's class, I remember being just totally overwhelmed. Not overwhelmed, but I, I was very very moved by that play and disturbed by it because there's in that play and that's obviously now that's obviously Greek play but it, in there in that play there's this sense of how the gods are just operating on a different plane from mortal men where where like we as people want to believe that the concern of the gods or of god is with us right and exists on the same plane that we exist and that play is very much about the idea that the concerns of the gods are completely inaccessible to us and may even be harmful to us. Yes. Whereas this play, you know, what you're getting at, I I think is very different. And look, I don't know enough about folklore and mythology to say if this is unique to Celtic mythology or not. But in this play, you are seeing much more of the, you know, the sense that we are the gods playthings. And like, they are interested in what's going on in our level, but they're interested in it in a sense of, they're taking delight in sowing chaos and playing with us. You know, Puck says, Then will two at once will one that must needs be sport alone, and those things do best please me that befall preposterously. You know, where he's talking about how now Demetrius and Lysander are both going to be pursuing Helena. So you get the sense that Puck just delights in this mischief. Uh, sorry, I feel like I've wandered off topic. No, 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 no. I think question, that's but. I think that's good. He does delight in the mischief, which in some way makes him more endearing. I think the, you know, when you brought up the Bacchae, the logical extent of that is basically H.P. Lovecraft, where, like, the ancient old ones are basically serenely indifferent to human existence, and if they do pay attention, they actively want to destroy humanity for a variety of reasons, in the same way you might, like, swat at an ant or, like, kill a fly, right? I don't think Shakespeare's mm-hmm. quite going that dark here, but there is this sense of, like, a... Without going too heady and academic on this one, there's the sort of pre-Christian mythology, I feel like, of of Old England and the Celtic universe mashed up against the sanitized Greeks. And that's kind of an interesting thing in and of itself. You know, for the audience, they're tapping into these older storylines... And, and I'm not necessarily saying that people are, are going to be processing this at that level in the theater, but it's, it's always been very interesting to me because I feel like one of the reasons people like this play 
is at the man on the street level. I feel like it gets performed in high schools a lot. That's what I remember mm-hmm. it from. And at the more heady academic level, I think people like it because it's so inventive. It's not based on known source material. And there's a lot of richness, a crossing between worlds, the musicality of the language, the play within the play construct. There's a lot of like, if you want to go write a peer-reviewed essay for some Shakespearean journal, there's definitely a lot of material to work with there. So I think it's kind of an interesting skewing both high and yeah. low, you know? You know what else, Will, I think is, you know, we talked in our Edward Third episode about the way that in Edward Third there's no shown action versus in the Henry the Sixth histories, there's a lot of stage combat and, you know, and there's, there is like a lot of visual action on the stage. I think part of what's appealing about this play is there's a bit of pageantry to it. Mm. Don't you think there, you know, there's the musical numbers. I mean, obviously the music isn't explicitly in the text, right? There's no, there's no notate musical notation or anything, but there's songs that the fairies sing there's the little fairies that Bottom is interacting with who are running around who supposedly were played by kids and are often played by kids in contemporary productions. You know, there's the metamorphosis of Bottom where he's got the ass's head. You got you to gotta give the kids from the art class, the studio art class, something to do, you know? Get yeah, their, exactly. Get their credits in high school, so. Exactly. So I, I feel like there's just a visual element to this play that's not exactly on the page, but it is a little bit on the page, I think. Yeah, well, and, and you know, the thing I remember from whenever I've seen this performed, it's usually the character of Puck, who I often just sort of think of is is often the most entertaining character and they usually choose one of the better actors of whatever ensemble to do it and part of the entertainment right is watching puck prance around in the woods spying on the mortals and wreaking havoc and you literally see him apply the potion over and over again in some cases doing it to people either by deliberate targeting people who he deliberately wants to sow chaos for and in some cases possibly accidentally but you get to watch all of that you know you get to see him scheme and peer into things and then you get to watch him literally pour the potion in and then see the after effects almost immediately so there's an entertaining richness to that i I, i'm worried this is going to come out too mean but i feel like there is something just inherently entertaining about seeing a character on stage who is enjoying watching the confusion of the other characters on stage. Mm. Which, you know, is like a little bit of the appeal of Aaron the Moor, to bring in another uh, reference to an obscure play, right? Where on the one hand, it's like, it's a little distressing to see how confused Mm. and put out the four Athenians are about what's happening to them. But having Puck there on stage, who's like leading Demetrius and Lysander around, stumbling around in the dark, or who's going on about how I am that, whatever the line is that he says about him being Robin Goodfellow or mm-hmm. Hobgoblin or whatever. You know, there's there's something very transparently appealing about the authenticity of a character who's like, yeah, I really like seeing what I can do to like pull pranks on people. You know, I mean, not for nothing is prank humor a you know, a favorite pastime of many people, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, another thing that's interesting about this and maybe where I feel like the play 
falls a little bit flat is you get to watch all of that with Puck and it's very enjoyable and you get to watch all the chaos and the magic and then the mechanicals have a certain low entertaining humor you know especially as you said with their terrible play that they're performing which you know to use another great literary reference of something within a within another fictional work that's intended to be bad it reminded me of Mark Twain in Huckleberry Finn the poem that Huck Finn comes across by Emmeline Granger, Ode to Stephen Dowling Bott's Deceased, which is just this horrible rhyming couplet. But in a way, right, to see great writers write purposefully awful things is entertaining in its own right and worthy of note and attention. Anyway, I, I guess where it falls a little flat for me, though, is the Athenians. It's great to see them acted upon, but they are really just billiard balls careening around based on what the fairy kingdom is doing, which is entertaining. But they're all kind of interchangeable and a little bit disposable. The two who have the most interest are probably Demetrius and Helena. You know, their sort of love-hate dynamic is really interesting in this one. And they, they sort of add a little bit of life. But I feel like with the rest of them, it's a little bit tedious. It reminds me of a... Two Gentlemen of Verona with a supernatural flair thrown in uh, for kicks. So I can see what you mean. I actually think... I actually think there is some richness to the portrayal of what's happening with the Athenians, though not exactly in the sense that there is richness to the actual psychology or characters of the Athenians. So, like, for one, I, I feel like we do see pretty clear to me differentiation between these four characters right like you so you have the two men and the two women between the two men lysander is pretty clearly a romantic idealist i think you know you see that in that scene where he lies down with Mm. you know where he and hermia are going to sleep and this is right before puck is going to apply the potion to lysander and they have this conversation and basically Lysander wants them to lie down together and Hermia doesn't want them to lie down together because it wouldn't be appropriate. And Lysander's actually will. Let me let me find the line here because it's it's very cute, actually, the way it happens. So they're they're getting basically they're getting ready to lie down because they're in the forest and they haven't gotten where they're going. Lysander wants Hermia to lie down next to him. And he says, one turf shall stand as pillow for us both. One heart, one bed, two bosoms, and one truth. And then when Hermia first says no, he says, Oh, take the sense sweet of my innocence. Love takes the meaning in love's conference. I mean that my heart unto yours is knit, so that but one heart we can make of it. Two bosoms interchained with an oath, so then two bosoms and a single troth. Then by your side no bedroom me deny, for lying so, Hermia, I do not lie. Now, I think you could play this as being that Lysander really just, you know, wants to get some mm-mm-mm going on with Hermia. <laughs> but the, the way it reads in the play is that Lysander's, and what we've seen also from the two characters, Lysander seems very sincere and pure, and he, like, really is in love with Hermia. Whereas, not for nothing did I refer to Demetrius as the local douchebag in my plot summary. Mm-hmm. And we'll get a little mm-hmm. bit more into that character later. But D- Demetrius has been pretty clearly leading on Helena for some time, and, like, the way that he talks to her is, shall we say, not very nice? Yeah, can, uh, can we—maybe this is a good point to bring in Helena's voice. I mean, she is basically being abused by Demetrius left and right. I'll read this one passage to illustrate how beaten down Helena is. I am 
Samuel Spaniel and Demetrius. The more you beat me, I will fawn on you. Use me but as your Spaniel. Spurn me, strike me, neglect me, lose me. Only give me leave, unworthy as I am, to follow you. What worse a place can I beg in your love, and yet a place of high respect with me, than to be used as you use your dog? God. Yes, that's about as grim as so, uh, it gets, right? <laughs> uh, so, first of all, again, on the subject of character differentiation, this passage you just read was one that I also marked out. And, and it is not the only moment that we see this with Helena. And I feel like Helena is, you know, reading it with a modern eye is very clearly defined by having deeply, deeply seated self-esteem issues. It's not just that, you know, later on she refers to herself as being as ugly as a bear and how, like, all the men should are going to run away from her because she's so ugly. So, sorry, so, well, to conclude the, the previous point, I, I all I was trying to get at was that I, I do think that we see real differences in all four of these characters. I would object to the characterization that they're interchangeable. I think Shakespeare does a pretty good job of... Mm. Now, admittedly, in a pretty limited number of lines... Because he's following the Mechanicals and Oberon and Titania and the Athenians and the play's only 80 pages long, right? He's not giving a ton of lines to any one set of characters. Nonetheless, within that context, I think he does a pretty good job of giving these four Athenians different ways of viewing the world and themselves. You're probably right and probably being more fair than, than I was. I guess there's a little bit of me that as much as I enjoy seeing the fairy world acted upon or acting upon the the world of mortals, I almost wish it was a little bit more subversive and kind of ran the other way in a sense. You know, there's a little bit of, uh, of dog bites man. There's part of me that wishes there was a man bites dog element to the story, just because I feel like I'm used to sort of stories of the gods acting on helpless and hapless mortals. But yeah, no, I, I take your point. And the, the bit with Lysander, it's kind of the equivalent, when he's making his pitch to Hermia, it's kind of the equivalent of like slipping your arm around your date when you're at the movie theater or something like that. So, you know, I, I game respects game, though I suppose you could read that another way if you really wanted to. But I, I agree with you. It's more innocent and cute than anything else. I mean, let's also, you know, let's give Lysander maybe a little bit more credit. I mean, maybe it is both cute, but also with, you know, with a little... A little thing going on in the back of his mind going, hmm. See where this goes. Um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, Um, he wouldn't be the first. (laughs) To your point about Dog Bites Man and the thing about them being subject to the whim of the gods, I feel like this is an opportune moment to shift to another thing I wanted to get at with this play, which I see what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. But I feel like thematically... Something that's happening in this play is Shakespeare wanting to address a subject that he's talked about, I think, in a more negative context in the past. Mm. And in this play is, actually, I guess is also basically still negative, but maybe less negative or treated in a a more complex way, Mm. which is him talking about dynamics of love and romance and being in love and passion. So on the one hand, yes. So the, the instrumentality of the plot does have it that these four Athenians come under the sway of the gods. 
mm. right? Or, or the sway of the fairies. But in this case, it, it basically amounts to the sway of the gods. So yes, that's true. But the effect of that on the Athenians is not for them, you know, for them it is not an awareness that they are being mistreated mm. by or that they are the playthings of the gods, right? To them, it just feels like the unpredictability and the fickleness of romantic and or erotic passion. Mm. And I think that, so first of all, I think there's a pretty amazing idea that Shakespeare is advancing here, which is that the illogic of our passions is so extreme as that like the only way that we can conceive of why our passions operate in this way is that it must be an affliction set on us by the gods. Mm. You, so you see that with the way that Helen and Hermia respond, because like from their perspective, Lysander starts acting in this crazy way. And it, in fact, we, we as the audience know that it is crazy, mm. right? We, we know that Lysander's affections do truly lie with Hermia and that he's only behaving this way towards Helena because of the potion. Now, Helen and Hermia don't know that, and so to them, it's like some crazy thing has happened that is causing Lysander to, to act in this way. And I think that what that gets at is that sort of suffering of being enthralled by passion and being frustrated by it and not understanding why we can't care less. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and the, I guess in the feeling that, that it's unpredictable and uncontrollable. <laughs> and like out of our hands and then and then we are at the mercy of something that is more powerful than ourselves yeah there's there's something sort of anarchic about it in a way you know when you're just trying to confine your view to that of you know the other people the other athenians in the play they are acted upon you know as opposed to yeah. and in that sense i think that there's there's an element of truth to this play and you know I think that that may also be why it appeals to a variety of audiences, including adolescents and people that are interested in this idea of romantic love beyond just like this play itself. Can I will hit on uh, another topic? Yeah. That's related to this that I think is, is worth bringing up in the context of evergreen romantic related topics, mm. which is Shakespeare's presentation of the way that Love or passion for someone who does not requite your passion drives them away from you and makes them less likely <laughs> to engage with you. And similarly, how the how rejection or disdain only fans the flames of passion, mm -hmm. which I feel like is a is a subject that we get through here. And then related to that is I know you had wanted to talk about negging as a very directly relevant uh, or modern relevant topic but do you have any thoughts about that oh i about you know, either of these topics demetrius and and helena absolutely i mean she that spaniel passage literally lays out how she just wants to follow him around even though he's basically beating her like she's a dog in terms of a uh, emotional sense unclear if physically that's happening but there's a great passage here that illustrates just the point you were talking about about how rejection can spur some people onward to sort of become obsessed with the object of their desire. And in this case, it's Helena, and her, she's asking Hermia to explain. So we'll, we'll read the passage. Oh, 
teach me how you look and with what art you sway the motion of Demetrius' heart. I frown upon him, yet he loves me still. Oh, that your frowns would teach my smiles such skill. I give him curses, yet he gives me love. Oh, that my prayers could such affection move. The more I hate, the more he follows me. The more I love, the more he hateth me. His folly, Helena, is no fault of mine. None but your beauty. Would that fault were mine. And I think that's actually kind of a, a wonderful way of both the grass is always greener being illustrated here in a way. Hermia wishes that Demetrius was not pursuing her at all and cared nothing for her. Helena, desperate to have Demetrius fall in love with her, and he just displays no interest, or more appropriately, he really displays hatred and annoyance with her throughout the play. And his rejection of her only makes it worse in a variety of ways, and the fact that he's constantly insulting her, which sort of gets to this theme of quote-unquote negging, which is a, uh, a term that I am hesitant to use, but is very amusing in the context of, of this play, because Demetrius... I'd like to offer a shout-out to one Sean Smith, on this subject? Yes, yes, our one of our old college roommates. So Sean introduced this term to us. He checked out of the library a book by Neil Strauss, the Rolling Stone journalist, entitled The Game, and then left it lying around the common room, which led to many readings in a comic fashion of this ridiculous book that was about pickup artists, uh, which was much to all of our amusement and uh, chagrin, and in some cases, everlasting shame. But negging is a term that comes from there, and it's basically when you're putting down a woman and sort of attacking her self-esteem in order to get her to like you. It sounds crazy. It doesn't seem like it should work. Apparently, these pickup artists believe that it does. But that is definitely what Demetrius, I feel like, is doing to some degree, even though he actually does hate her. So maybe it's not negging per se. But yeah, definitely insulting her and uh, object of affection. That's a, that is a, a problem. So on this subject of, you know, the way that Demetrius interacts with Helena, Will... So this brings up what actually might be my most enduring question about this play, which is, um, so, you know, we get, we get to the end of the play. Puck has restored Lysander to his senses, and Lysander is now safely back ensconced with Hermia. And I, I would say we're pretty confident that Hermia and Lysander are going to go off and get married, and all's going to be well, and whatever. Puck has also now executed correctly the original instruction of Oberon and applied the love potion to Demetrius so that he will fall in love with Helena. And and it feels like we get to the end of the play and theoretically, at least, we're supposed to be left with, well, now, you know, Helena has, of course, been in love with Demetrius all along. Now Demetrius, due to the love potion, is in love with Helena and happily ever after i guess and i couldn't help once we once i got to the end of the play but be like are we sure that helena and demetrius are destined for a happy life together or a healthy relationship given the fact sorry well let me just set the stage for you before you answer (laughs) given the fact one that we know that demetrius's love for helena is essentially chemically driven you know, that he, he's had a narcotic applied to his eyes to make him 
fall in love with Helena. <laughs> and B, we've seen that he's really, really horrible to her, even when he's not under the influence of this thing. And C, I feel like we have ample insight into Helena's character to be able to say that at the very minimum, she needs a whole lot of therapy. So what are your thoughts on this? I do not think that this uh, marriage is destined to last particularly long. I would say an annulment may be in order because so little time will elapse. But yeah, it's clear that, you know, they can't magic be damned. I don't think that the fundamentals are strong here. Yeah, these are uh, these are definitely two people who need to go work on themselves for a little while. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a very kind way of putting it. So I think we've covered a lot of frontage here with characters, plot devices and everything else. Uh, I think that leaves us with rankings and MVP. So let's do the ranking of this play first. Where does it fall for you of the ones that we've done thus far? And maybe we so, can do it by, you know, you can do it by genre with comedy and and then maybe place it in the overall uh, sure. arc. This actually is something I've thought a little bit about, and I'm finding, I found a little bit challenging, to be honest, to figure out where I stand on this one. Because I do, you know, what, what I have, what I will say about this play is for all that I find it to be a little bit like there's just something about it that's a little outside my grasp. Mm. And, and I, I realize that sounds vague and doesn't sound like it means anything, but I didn't come to the end of this play feeling like it had some grand emotional impact on me mm. or that I felt like any of the ideas in it, even though I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to discuss in the play, I didn't come to it feeling like it gave me super penetrating insight about anything. Mm. You know, like it, it feels to me like a, a confection. It is a fun read. You can imagine it being fun to, in fact, not you can imagine, like it is a fun play to watch, to see performed. You know, it's a nice way to spend two hours at the theater, right? Mm. That said, and I, I mentioned this earlier, I do find there to be, there is something that has stuck with me about it. And like, there's something mysterious and dangerous about particularly that supernatural element that has stuck with me. Yeah. Nonetheless, and like, I don't want to be a broken record here. I don't want to overstate anything. And I, I feel like this is going to become a joke down the line. Ultimately, I still feel like of the comedies, like definitely, first of all, definitely better than Two Gentlemen and Taming the Shrew. And, and I, think, I think also better than Comedy of Errors, frankly. Mm -hmm. That said, I still would put Love's Labor's Lost above this one. In, in terms of the comedies, in the sense that I feel like Love's Labor's Lost ends up being about some deeper thing some and something very real, even though those first four acts are fairly lightweight. Yeah, um, yeah. And so this one, and, and then though I think that probably overall this one is probably more entertaining play to watch. But anyway, for, so for me, this, this would go, of the comedies would be second right now below Love's Labor's Lost. And then I would put it below Romeo and Juliet. So I think I think for me, that would make it number four. Um, no, actually, wait, now I'm trying to think where would I put it in relation to to uh, Henry's Thicks Part Two. Um, I think 
I think I would place it above Henry VI Part Two. Interesting. So for me, it would slot in at number four. So I would put it below Henry VI Part Two. I enjoyed some of the comic parts of actually that play more, all the more because it's set in this historical universe that I find interesting and very appealing. I guess among the comedies, I I kind of agree with you, but I also think that I guess at the end of the day, I do think it's a better play than Love's Labor's Lost, even if it doesn't it doesn't quite resonate with me in the same way. I recognize that the craft and the work on this one and sort of the, the flight of the imagination is kind of a more impressive artistic feat, even if it doesn't like necessarily resonate with me quite as much. So in that sense, I guess like if you were to ask me which of the two I'd want to see performed more consistently as well i think i'd probably have to say midsummer night's dream so i'm gonna put that at the top of the comedy pile uh for me so i think this is probably my my favorite of the comedies at this point okay so will uh just sorry because we always need to be as precise as possible about our rankings so we can properly maintain Mm -hmm. the power rankings Mm -hmm. list so currently you have Love's Labor's Lost is number five for you. Mm-hmm. Your your rankings right now are number one, Richard III, number two, Romeo and Juliet, number three, Henry VI Part II, number four, Richard II, number five, Love's Labor's Lost. So the question is, do you put this above Richard II or below Richard II? I put it below Richard II. Okay, so this becomes number five. I think, uh, I think that's just due to my dour personality, though. But... Yeah, we'll we'll see. We'll see. I'm I'm curious to see where the rest of the comedies go cuz we're sort of getting beyond my knowledge of most of the comedies anyway. Um with this one, I think we're sort of crossing into territory that I'm not as familiar with with all of the comic plays. Mhm. So, and then will uh who would you anoint the MVP of this play? I give it to Puck, Robin Goodfellow. I am gonna i'm actually gonna disagree on this one i Mm. i um i would make oberon the uh the mvp of this one more because of the instrumentality of the plot i think but i i guess i would just also observe that really no one gets a ton of page space in this play Mm -hmm. like as we observed earlier it's very short and also it's divided into these multiple storylines and therefore no one character really gets any overwhelming amount of lines <laughs> and Oberon I feel like is the main mover of action in the play mm. so I'm going with Oberon yeah okay I mean plausible don't agree but plausible you know acceptable to have You're a wrong. difference of, yeah exactly acceptable to have a difference of opinion here well I, I appreciate your willingness to accept that uh, reasonable people may differ sometimes unreasonable people as well will are you reading or watching anything right now that you would like to recommend to our our listeners yes i would like to heartily plug the films of spike lee i watched the five bloods on netflix but then that led me to revisiting malcolm x which is so different than a lot of his films and is kind of like another level clearly it was like a passion project for him and it is kind of a, a old school Hollywood blockbuster 
an amazing bunch of set pieces that are linked together with an amazing performance by Denzel Washington. Uh, so in that sense, I, I feel like Spike Lee, interesting director. I feel like some of his films have been hit and miss recently, but The Five Bloods is pretty good, and Malcolm X, truly fantastic film. All right. That's, again, the films of Spike Lee in general It was, was what I took away from that. <laughs> Yes, and uh, The Five Bloods and Malcolm X in particular. And that's our show. Tune in next time for our show on King John, not one of Shakespeare's or England's most illustrious sovereigns. Thanks for tuning in to Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.